So I'm going to move on. I'm going to uh, move on to this morning's reading. If I can get my PowerPoint to work. Wow. Oops, next one. There we go. And we're going back to Ephesians. So if you've got your Bibles there, it helps to have them open. And I'm going to read from uh, Ephesians 2, uh, verses 11 to 22. So Paul says this. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth, that's non-Jews, and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. I want to read you a, a quote before I start. This is um, uh, Eugene Peterson quotes this uh, writer called uh, Annie Dillard. Uh, you might be glad to see, I don't know, the PowerPoint has returned for this week. Um, just there were some things I wanted to show you. Um, but this is an interesting quote. She says, why do people in churches uh, seem like cheerful, brainless tourists on a packaged tour of the absolute? On the whole, I don't find Christians outside of the catacombs sufficiently sensible of conditions. In other words, they don't know the conditions in which they meet. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or, as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill uh, a Sunday morning. It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. For the sleeping God may wake someday and take offence, or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. So I quite like that. Um, I quite like that quote, especially the last bit, um, where it says, um, it, it's madness to come, you know, uh, to, uh, this is obviously a different culture slightly, uh, perhaps an, an American culture. It's madness to come uh, in, in straw hats or, or velvet hats to church. We should be wearing crash helmets um, because you never know what God might do. So the question is, are, are, are our services, is our church a little bit sleepy? Um, and if it's sleepy, is that because we don't really believe it? Um, and she says at the end, the sleeping God may wake someday 
uh, and, and take offence, that would be um, an awful thing. Or the waking God may draw us out to where we never can return. That's what we want. We want God to draw us into new places that, we, that we've never seen before uh, and teach us things that we've never really understood. So here we are. Um, we're taking, uh, before we go to our harvest next week, um, do come if you can. I think uh, we need to seriously think about meeting in person. So this is going to be a bit of an experiment next week. Um, but please let the office know at the earliest possible opportunity. We'd like as many people to, to be there as possible. And we'd like you to give us a problem of, of trying to work out how to get you all socially distanced. I don't think it will be a problem, um, but please think about it um, and let us know uh, as soon as you can. But for this morning, uh, we're back in Ephesians. Um, and we're looking at Ephesians again on the basis of, of chapter 1, verse 17 and 18, where Paul says, I keep asking that the God of our our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. And he says, I pray the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. That's our prayer. That is our prayer, Lord, this morning. Open, uh, open the eyes of our heart. Um, on the assumption, then, that there are things, there are things here that we've never seen before. I mean, why would you read scripture again? Why would you come back to... Uh, come back to the Bible. Well, uh, one of the reasons is that you want to carry on living as a Christian and you know that you need to be fed. But we come back to it um, with an expectation that there are, there are experiences of God um, that you have never yet had. I mean, that has to be true, doesn't it? Because he's, because he's infinite. At a logical level, it has to be true. There, are, there is an experience of God that you have not yet had. That's, that's got to be true logically, but it's also, it's also true biblically. Uh, um, and, and we suggested a week or two ago, I'm not looking to, to, uh, to pattern that experience on anything that's happened in the recent past. I must ask God to show us himself more and where he's taking us. And there are things that you've never, never seen and never understood yet in the scriptures. That's, that's our assumption um, when we come back to the scriptures, and that's our assumption. Um, as we're coming back to Ephesians now. And so I want to backtrack a little bit and just uh, and summarise, how do we walk in a way um, to see the, the unexperienced things um, in, in Scripture? And the first thing I would say is don't be satisfied with less than what the Bible says. It's very easy as Christians to pretend. Say, and, and I think I discovered this for myself in previous weeks, that the Bible talked about hope, um, I realise how much actually uh, I tend to despair in my life. And I was quite shocked to see how little hope, um, a, a, you know, a real Christian hope um, was functioning in, in my life. And what have I been doing in the meantime? I've been assuming that I had all that was there out for me. And it's a wrong assumption. And there's a danger that actually if we do that, then we actually pretend. And if we pretend we have all that the Bible has to offer and there is... Uh, I, uh, there is no more for us to get, then we're not going to go looking for what more there is. So don't be satisfied with less than what the Bible says. The Bible says there is an energizing hope and there is a power that should be at work within you. And you say, I don't see that. And don't be, don't be satisfied. Don't pretend. Go back to the Lord. Um, go back in impassioned prayer. So don't accept life not working. Now, all three, there are going to be hardships all through our lives. But if life is not working 
go back to the Lord. I think I knew as soon as I became a Christian that my life, life didn't seem to work and the Christian life didn't seem to work for me in the same way that it worked for other people. And I spent my whole Christian life hunting God down. Why does this bit of life not work, Lord? What is going on here? Um, what am I missing? Um, what are you trying to say? I think it's all too easy to get to a point in life where life kind of works and, and we're satisfied um, and, uh, and we're steady um, and you know income comes in and income goes out and everything is okay and you have your retirement fund in place um, uh, uh, and it works. I have to say life's never been like that for me. Maybe that's the grace of God to me. Uh, I'm not entirely sure which way that works. Um, but don't accept life not working. Uh, like if life, uh, on the other hand, don't accept life working either. Life is just working and ticking over. Don't accept that and assume that you have everything that the Lord has to offer. Be prepared to change your mind. And I would even say experiment with changing your mind. We've talked about some deep truths about being predestined, um, being chosen by God, that he chose us um, before we chose him. Yes, we did choose him, but we only chose him because uh, he first chose us and actually enabled us to choose um, that's maybe not how you thought before. Um, don't write off things that don't sit easily with you. I would say try them on for size. Um, not just for fun or for fantasy, but when you're challenged by Scripture, um, allow Scripture to say what it says and then work through what are the consequences of that and why does that sit easy, easily or uneasily with me. And actually, sometimes when Scripture sits uneasily with you, then that is the moment where God reveals something new to you about you, about him, uh, about the way the world works. And of course, pray. Um, pray this text for yourself. Um, pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ. You might have the spirit of wisdom and revelation that you might know God better. There is always, uh, there is always more um, to be known. And so, for example, again, I'm backtracking a little bit. What if God's will is suffering over ours? And in a sense, um, in a real sense, it's not that our choices aren't real. It's not that our choices don't do things. Um, but what if God sovereignly chose us? What if actually, before he chose us, we were so bound um, to sin that we weren't actually able to choose him uh, with a free choice? He actually had to come down uh, and and uh, make us alive in Christ before we could even actually choose him. Um, I want you to try that on for size. That was, the, um, that was where the Bible study was leading, if you've done uh, the third Bible study this last week. Because I think if we believe that Christianity was simply we, a, a, a choice, it was our choice, simply our choice, um, think of a number of things go wrong. And um, I put on the uh, WhatsApp chat in the week, it's something from Tim Keller. He says, here are two biblical truths that need to be held together. Um, everything we do is part of God's plan. Everything we do is part of God's plan. Yet we are never coerced and we are completely responsible for our actions. I think that's at the heart of Christianity and those things, you have to hold them together. Everything we do is part of God's plan. He planned it um, ahead of time, yet we're never coerced and are completely responsible for our actions. Without the first truth, that it's part of God's plan, we're stressed by believing it's all up to us how our lives go. Without the second truth, we will think all our choices don't really matter. Believe this doctrine, he says, and escape both complacency and anxiety. 
It's quite helpful, isn't it? But I think if we believe that we've chose God, um, then um, a, a number of things happen, or, or there is the potential for a number of things happen. One is that we never really understand the depths of our sinfulness. If you think, well, I chose God, you think, well, I was quite, a, I was a good lad. I was a good lad, and I, 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 I knew I wasn't perfect, but I was a good lad in as much as I chose God. Um, God doesn't allow you that. He says you, you were a sinner through and through, and we never really understand that if we think we choose God. I think if we think we chose God, we continue to think we have something to bring to the table. We keep thinking, in the Christian life, I've got something to bring, I've got something to offer. And that falls over into us thinking we've got something to bring for our justification. And that prevents us from ever really enjoying the Lord's justification. Justification by, by grace through faith. And also it makes us, um, we, we build, we do what the, um, the psalmist was trying to encourage us to not do, which is to try to build the house in our own strength. It doesn't work. If we think it was our choice that chose God, we think we have to hold on to him rather than the exciting truth that if he called us and chose us, then it's up to him to hold on to us. It's his holding on that is stronger. Perhaps most fundamentally, I think if, if we feel that we chose God, then the danger is you say, I chose to be, to be a Christian. Then you feel like you have control of things and it's very easy to put Christianity on one side in your life is to kind of park it uh, as just part of your life. Whereas if you know you are totally sinful uh, and God called you out like somebody, like, uh, like a lifeboatman throwing uh, a ring um, to a drowning person in the sea, then you will have a sense of being called uh, and a sense of gratitude and a sense of being part of something bigger. It spares us from being um, individualistic. And uh, Eugene Peterson says the individualist is the person who's convinced that he or she can serve God without dealing with God. I'll leave that with you. But here are some um, truths today, and I'm going to be uh, pretty brief uh, about them. I want you to try on for size. And I think you'll find that these are really big truths and uh, very easy to have missed them uh, and to have not got our heads around them. And the first one is that Gentiles effectively become Jews in Christ. The second one is that Jews effectively become Christians in Christ. Jews and Gentiles are now one group um, saved through Christ. And the third one, Jews and Gentiles are being built into the new temple. Three truths. I'm going to look at them really briefly uh, this morning. Uh, the first one uh, is that Gentiles become Jews in Christ. Maybe never. That's, that's a, it's a strange thought, isn't it? Uh, the background is that the Jews called uh, the Gentiles, they called themselves the circumcision, and they called uh, the Gentiles the uncircumcised. It was key to Jewish identity um, that they were the circumcision. Um, and... Uh, Gentiles, because they were uh, uncircumcised, by definition, in, in Jewish thinking, they were excluded um, from God, um, and they were excluded from the promises that God had made um, to his people. And Paul says to them, um, remember, if you're a Gentile by birth, 
Um, at one time, at the time before you became a Christian, you were um, separate, separate from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship uh, among the people of God. You had no right. You had no rights amongst the, the people of God. Um, you were foreigners um, to the covenants. So you, you were not a citizen, so by definition you were a foreigner. If you were a foreigner, you, know, had access, you had no access to the covenant promises that God made with his people. But he says, I am your God and you are my people and I want to bless you. And therefore, um, he says, if you were Gentile by birth, you, you had no hope. You were without hope and you were um, without God. And then he says, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The amazing truth then is that when you trust Christ, you are considered as one of the circumcised people of God. It's not unusual. I don't know whether you're expecting Paul to say that in his letter. I don't know whether you've ever um, taken on board what Paul has said there. What would we expecting Paul to say? Um, but the truth is, um, as a Gentile, um, if you have become a Christian, you've accepted what Christ did on the, on the cross, uh, the blood of Christ has, has been shed for you, um, you have entered into all those promises um, that God made to the Jews to be his people, uh, to have a place. Um, it's amazing. But it's not um, unprecedented in Scripture. Uh, Paul says this in Romans, a person is not a Jew who is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. So the circumcision that matters is the circumcision of the heart, is the cleansing of the heart by the, by the spirit, um, not the written code. So I don't know how you feel this morning. Do you feel like a, a foreigner to, to God's people? I hope not. But there might be one, there might be two. Do you know and, and trust the, the promises, the promise that God says, I will be your God and you will be one of my people. Uh, I have a plan for you and I have a plan to bless you. Do you know that? Or, or have you lost hope? Do you feel you're without God in the world? Do you feel um, far away from him? Well, if you do, then come to the cross because that is where these promises um, have been made yours. These promises have been made yours. This is your identity. You are one of God's people. You have been um, circumcised in the heart uh, by the spirit, not by the written code. And the blood of Christ has brought you near. In other words, it's brought you uh, before God um, like one of his chosen people. So Gentiles become Jews in Christ. That's true. I don't, it's, maybe that's a slight kind of overstatement, but you get where I'm going. Jews, on the other hand, Jews become Christians. Uh, in Christ. Um, Jesus is the peace between Jews and Gentiles. Uh, Paul says he himself, Jesus, um, is our peace who's made the two groups one, the Jews and the Gentiles one, because he's destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commandments. So the thing dividing Jews and Gentiles 
It's, it's the law of Moses. They have the law of Moses. They have the Ten Commandments. They have the circumcision. And Paul says that Jesus has set that aside. He has inactivated it, uh, is one way of saying that it no longer is a means of salvation. And it is no longer the identity marker uh, of the people of God. And Paul says more than that. He says this was Jesus' purpose. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. One new humanity, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross. So he said what Jesus' purpose is to, is to call Jews, and it is to call Gentiles, it is to make them one people, and it is to reconcile all of them to God by his shed blood on, on the cross. So God's plan for the Jews, for, the, for his salvation for the Jews, uh, is through the cross just as it is for you and I. And both then, uh, Jews and Gentiles, have access to God the Father uh, by the same Holy Spirit. It's always been this way. Again, it shouldn't surprise us, Paul. Um, it's always been salvation by grace through faith. It's never been salvation by works. Paul says that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Galatians 3. And in Romans 4, it says it was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be the heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. So in one sense, it shouldn't be a surprise, and yet we constantly find that it is. So Paul says that Jesus came and he preached to you who are far away. He preached to Gentiles. And he preached to those who were near um, the Jews. So how about you, though? Are you feeling near or are you feeling far away this morning? It's really, it's really easy to be kind of near if you are, uh, if you are a family member this morning brought up um, in, in, the Christian, in a Christian household. It's easy to be near in the sense that you're, you're physically near and you, you, you've heard the gospel. Um, and, and yet to be far away, and yet to be spiritually far away. I wonder um, whether you're near or far. It's also easy if you're brought up in a Christian household to get the impression that salvation is by being good, which it ain't. It is always by the blood of Christ. It is always through the cross of Christ. It is always by grace through faith. But I ask you again this morning, do you know access to the Father by the work of the Holy Spirit? If you don't, come back to the cross. Trust the blood of Jesus afresh. The third paragraph of uh, our reading this morning, Jews and Gentiles in Christ are the new temple. So he says, consequently, you are citizens of, of God's people. He says, you're no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people. So you become fellow citizens of God's people, uh, with, which, with the Jewish believers, and you become members of God's household. Uh, it comes up as household without the brackets on the word search if, you, if you're out there this morning doing a word search. There is one household of God now. There is one temple made up of Jewish believers in Christ, including uh, Jewish believers who trusted in, in grace, 
uh, in salvation by grace through faith before Christ came, and Gentile believers in Christ. The old temple um, has gone. So here's a story for, from John's Gospel. When it was time, almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, doves, others sitting at tables exchanging money. He made a whip out of cords and drove all out from the temple courts. Sheep, cattle, scattered the coins of the money changers, overturned the tables. He says, get out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. And his disciples remembered that it's written, zeal for your house will consume me. And then the Jews responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And they replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And are you going to raise it in three days? But the temple he'd spoken of was his body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he'd said. And then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. So what was the proof that Jesus could drive the money changes out of the temple? It was his death and resurrection. He says, um, he says destroy this temple and I'll rise it again. And I'll... Um, and I will, rise, I will rise again in three days. He's talking to himself. The proof that he is the successor to the temple is his resurrection. The old temple is gone. There is a replacement temple. It is Christ. And in Christ, I am a temple of the Holy Spirit. And in Christ, we together um, are a, a, a temple of the Holy Spirit. The builder of this temple is God of this household, uh, which is you and I and all of us here uh, this morning, and the occupant is the is the Holy Spirit. Um, we're being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. It's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. I think by that Paul means not the prophets that we might meet in the church today, but the the apostles and the and the early definitive preachers of, of the gospel, the prophetic preachers of the gospel of that first generation. But either way, the cornerstone is Jesus. The cornerstone is always Jesus. So let me sum up. There's only one place to be saved, um, and that's in Christ. There is only one group of the saved, only one group that is being saved, that is Jews and Gentiles in Christ. I think that what that means is there are no separate promises for Jews and Gentiles anymore. They've been brought together uh, for one means of salvation. And I think this passage then is clear and unambiguous and should control um, how we understand the Bible and how we understand Scripture. The Jewish promises come to Christians, come to those who are in Christ, including the land promise. And I think the land promise is the new earth, uh, the new heavens, the new earth that God will create. Uh, that's when it reaches its fulfillment. And that means I think we have to interpret the Scriptures um, as Jesus said we should in, in, in Luke 24. He said to the two guys on the Emmaus Road, and he said to the disciples um, that all the scriptures um, uh, spoke about himself. But as we finish, just consider the privilege. The privilege you have as a Gentile to be included in the, in the chosen people of God. Um, to be an inheritor of those promises that were first made to the Jews. You're one of God's people 
He's, he's chosen you. He's called you. And he wants to bless you. And he wants to make you a blessing. What a, what a privilege that you are amongst the chosen and that you have been included. And I make no further application other than that we um, praise God together for what he's done in Christ. So let me pray and then we'll, uh, we'll sing and we'll celebrate that. Father God, thank you that in Christ we inherit the promise made to your first chosen people, uh, the nation of Israel. Thank you that you that through Christ we are included amongst your people. We give you praise. It's not something we could have achieved on our own. We thank you that you've broken down the wall of hostility that, that lay between Jews and Gentiles, which was the law of Moses. In Christ, it's gone as a means of identity. It's gone as a way of salvation. Thank you. Thank you, Lord, this morning that we don't have to keep the law to be right with you. It's not that the law is wrong. It's just that we couldn't keep it. Please, Lord, by your spirit, um, make us more like fulfillers of the law in Christ. Thank you that you're building us into a temple. We are together the place uh, where you are worshipped, where your Holy Spirit dwells. We pray that your spirit will be active, that you will be building your house, your household um, in us today and this week. And please just multiply in us this morning praise. Praise for your name and thankfulness for what you've done. Amen.